All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Lee Snow. No, I'm just playing. Um, all right. I'm going to go ahead and start off with saying this before we ever even get close to the sermon. The sermon you are about to hear is not usual. Okay. I understand that. I fought with how to, to tackle this subject. And to be honest with you, since we're not in a series right now, I decided to preach this sermon Sunday night, last Sunday night, which never happens. But here's the case. I was reading this book last week. It's called Barna Trends 2018, The Truth About a, Un, a Post-Truth Society. What this is, you've probably heard of the Barna Group before. You ever heard of the Barna Group before? It is an organization that is... Um, well, their whole, their whole purpose is to do statistical studies of the American population. So basically what this book is, is a big preacher nerd book that says, here's the percentage of, well, let me just pull something out here. I don't want to go with that one. Let's go with this one. One in three preachers says that they pray regularly with their elders, the elders of their church. So it's just statistics. It's a book about statistics. And I was reading it, and I got to page 175 last week. And to be honest with you, it's going to take a few weeks to get through this book and understand what it said. But I got to page 175, and it said this. Teens, top guides on moral issues. Doesn't that sound interesting? Where are teenagers aged 13 to 19 looking for answers to moral questions? Okay? I think I'm even going out of order from what I wrote down. Hang on a second. Let me make sure. Yep, I am. Good. Okay, so here's what we got. Let me go to this. Here's the answer. Teens top guides on moral issues. These are the top ten. I put the top nine up there, but here you go. You ready? A parent, a relative, a friend, a teacher or professor, a book, a Google search, a blog or article by an expert, a YouTube video, a general internet search, and 5% said cable news. Okay, now, here's some other statistics that followed that around. Are you ready for this? 48% believe that religious questions, religious and moral questions, cannot be answered with as much certainty as scientific ones. 63% of kids between the ages of 13 and 19 say that they believe that people can know, not just believe, that God exists. Because nowadays in our society, we have a break between the word belief and know. Believe is something that you just, you just think is true, regardless of truth, in our society. It's what we've changed the word believe into meaning. The problem is, what we talked about Wednesday, someone says, well, members of the Church of Christ don't believe in the Old Testament. I believe in the Old Testament. It's right here. I have it written down. I know that the Old Testament was actually written down. Now, we can de debate whether or not it's inspired by God, and it is. But we've turned belief into just, just some kind of mental assent. But 63% but of kids between the ages of 13 and 19 say that you, can't just, you can more than just believe that God exists. You can know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. 58% believe that they can make an argument with their friends, a sound argument that God exists with their friends. Now, 
we all hear the statistics that we come up with, right? 93% of statistics are just made up off the fly. These actually aren't. But here's the deal. We all hear about statistics of kids these days, young teenagers these days, and, and we'll say things like this. Well, they don't believe truth exists. Well, the majority of them believe that they can know that God exists. Well, teenagers, they can't, they can't reason from the scriptures. They don't know, they don't know the Bible. 58% say that they could make an argument with their friends and prove to them that God exists. Now, back to this list. You notice something that's not up there? Teach, uh, parents, relatives, friends, teachers, books, Google, blog articles, YouTube videos, general internet search, cable TV. Do you notice one thing that's not up there? Me. I'm not up there. Now do you see why I decided to preach this sermon Sunday night? I was reading this book Sunday afternoon, and I went, wait a second, I'm not on the list. Isn't that humbling? I mean, I feel like my job is pretty important. That's scary to me. I'm not even on the list. You know what that means? You know what that tells me? That no matter how much I babble on this stage, no matter how much I talk, no matter what arguments I put forward, no matter how much time I spend on my sermons, and I spend, you know, if I were to spend an entire work week doing nothing but writing one specific sermon, the kids in this room, they're not looking to me for the answers. What they're looking to is their parents and their relatives and their friends and their teachers. It's you guys. That means that what I say up here is strictly meant from now on for the rest of my life. What I say up here is meant to empower you to teach them what they need to know because they're not looking to me for the answers. They're not going to pay attention. Now, does that mean that they're somehow, you know, Calvinism is true and all kids are just innately sinful. No. What it means is that I have one week with, one hour a week with them. Unless you come to afternoon services, then I get two hours a week with them. Unless you come to Wednesday nights, then we get three hours with them. But if you come just Sunday mornings, and you punch your ticket, just Sunday mornings, I get one hour. And realistically, I don't even get an hour. I know some of y'all think I preach for a long time. I preach about 35 minutes on average, Okay. I get 35 minutes a week with them. They're not paying attention to me. They're paying attention to you. And so I kind of called an audible this week, and we're going to study the book of 2 Timothy. If you want to go ahead and open up there. 2 Timothy. It's interesting to me that now this is not, this isn't some just random study that someone came up with that they asked, you know, two students, two high school kids walking through the mall in Columbus, Georgia. This is a major statistical research that said that I didn't even make the list, but that you did, that parents, friends, and relatives make the list. Now, here's the catch with this. Okay, are you ready? Every child, every single child has either parents relatives, or friends. Some children don't have parents. That's why Rebecca and I have job security. Some, some kids don't have family members. They don't have relatives. There's none left. All of them have someone 
All of them know someone. So, since we're talking about kids, usually what we'll do is we'll say, well, this is a parenting sermon, and so it doesn't really apply to me. And plus, the guy who's talking has never even had a teenager. That's true, I haven't had a teenager. I have had 10 kids, though. Just throwing that out there. All right, so, this isn't just parenting. Even if you never have kids, if you're an adult and you've never had kids, you never plan on having kids, you don't have kids anymore because they've grown up or anything else, this is not just a parenting sermon. This is a sermon for every single person, okay? Now, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 2. 2 Timothy 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, serve as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands, of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But I share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. All right, a couple things here. First, number one, in verse number two, Paul says that Timothy is his child. But the problem is, well, let's just take a little reasoning here. Are you ready? Paul never had a wife. We know that because in 1 Corinthians... He says, I wish that everyone were like me. And then later on in the book, he says, doesn't every Christian have the ability, have the right, have the privilege as a Christian man to, to lead about a wife who is a sister? But I wish that you were like me, which means he didn't have a wife. Okay? Number one, Paul didn't have a wife. Number two, Paul's profession before he became a, uh, a Christian and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then started working as a tent maker to make ends meet. Um, his profession was, well, he was the muscle for the Sanhedrin. He's training to be a, a member of the Sanhedrin, but he wasn't married. And you can't be a member of the Sanhedrin unless you're married. But he has, um, I don't remember where we were yesterday, but, oh, I do. Um, well, I was talking to someone, and he said, well, you know, you don't have to have a degree to be a preacher. And I said, well, no, you don't. It helps, though. And he said, you don't have to, I mean, Paul didn't have a degree. And I went, whoa, hold up. Yes, he did. In our age, he would have had about the equivalence of three doctorate degrees is what we're saying nowadays. Just from level of understanding, level of knowledge and education. So he's being trained to be a member of the Sanhedrin, but he's not married yet, so he's the muscle. That's why in Acts chapter 7 and 8, he's the one going around persecuting the Christians on the behalf of the Sanhedrin because he can't be a member yet. Now, here's the catch. If he wasn't married and he had children, he couldn't have been a part of the Sanhedrin. But he's training to be one, which means Timothy is not his real child. It's not his biological child. What Paul is calling Timothy here is his child what he's saying is, I taught you the gospel. You're, you're my child because you look to me for answers. 
Uh, you're my child because I look to you to be the, 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 the future of our quote-unquote family, as it were. So, this whole passage starts off with a man who is not a parent or a relative, but is a friend. Then he goes in and says, I want you to fan into flame the gift of God, the, the power of God, that you received from me from my hands. Verse number six, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. God, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of this testimony about our Lord. We are terrified of the word testimony in the church. You mentioned testimony and people get, you know, get kind of queasy. Paul had a testimony that Timothy was seeing for his, for his, in his own eyes. Paul had a testimony that when Paul went somewhere, people listened. When Paul went somewhere, people got upset. But no matter what happened, Paul was going to keep teaching. That's the testimony that Paul is saying he has. For, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. All right, so Timothy has this family around him. He has his grandmother, Lois, his mother, Eunice, who, is, who has brought him up in the, in the education of the Scriptures. And now he has Paul, who has a, Timothy, or has a testimony that Timothy is seeing. And he says, I want you to fan into flames what you've seen. I want you to take what you've learned from me, and I want you to go farther than I've been able to go. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 14, what we read for the scripture reading this morning, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Timothy has grown up around the Scriptures. He's been taught, you know, he can name all 12 judges. He can, well, he's Timothy, which means he's a Jewish boy, He's half Jew, half Gentile. We'll read that in the book of Acts. But he's, he's grown up as a Jewish boy, which probably means he, he not only knows the judges by name, he can probably quote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy by heart. Tell me that kids can't learn the Bible, and I'll show you Jewish boys who learn the first five books, books that when adults, when we get our Scripture reading plans, we get to the book of Leviticus and we go, forget this. I'm not reading that. Plus, it's not even applicable to me anymore because we live in the New... We will, the only time that Christians make a, will make a rock-solid argument for the fact that we do not follow the Old Testament is when they get to the book of Leviticus and their reading programs and they're trying to figure out how they can not have to read it. Now, he knows this. He knows that book. Better than any of us in this room know this book. But here's the catch. Back in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, I want you to fan into flames the gift of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You learned this 
from the moment that you began this life, you were starting to learn the Holy Scriptures, as Paul calls them. But then, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. These Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul does not give Timothy the out of saying, I've learned the Bible since the time I was born, and so I'm perfectly fine. What he says is, you need to keep going, and you need to produce faith. Knowing the Scriptures is not the same as having faith. If you can quote all 12 judges, if you can quote all 13 apostles, if you can quote all 66 books of the Bible, if you can quote all 31,102 verses in the Bible, or the fact that you know there's 31,102 verses in the Bible, that does not mean that you have faith. What it means is you know the Scriptures. But knowing the Scriptures and having faith are two different things. You see, when we bring our kids to church, we, we teach them the Scriptures. They learn the Scriptures. They go to Bible class, and the, the ladies next door teach them. They, they come over here, and they, they sit in adult classes sometimes, and they learn from that. And we, ha- we go to youth events, and we do this, and we do that, and we go to camp. and That's them learning the Scriptures. But the people teaching them, they're not looking to them for the answers of how to apply what they're teaching them. They're looking to you for that. And so Paul says that I have a testimony. And Timothy, I want you to follow my testimony. Paul's giving Timothy the lifestyle that Timothy needs to learn how to take what he learned when he was growing up And turn it into a life. If you read the book of Leviticus. Read the book of 2 Samuel. Or 1 Kings. You can learn everything about the history of 1 Kings. And not know the moral teachings that are contained in 1 Kings. You need someone to show you that. And that's what an adult is there for. Parents and friends and family and so forth. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Right after this. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped to every good work. Chapter 4 begins, and it says, I charge you, therefore, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's the preacher's job to say something. But it's all of our jobs to live it out. You look back at um, at the book of Judges. You You have an interesting problem here. And this interesting problem is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua has all happened. You've got six books of the Bible that's already happened. All this history, all this wealth of knowledge about God and how He interacts with mankind and what He wants for us and the law has been set forward. And now, in the book of Judges, they're in the, in the promised land. The wanderings have already happened. The, 
the conquest of Canaan has already happened. Now they're in the promised land. And they have a problem. Judges chapter 2, verse number 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Joshua was the man who brought them into the Canaan land. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 10. And all that, that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That means they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done in Israel. And the people of Israel did not, or did, what was evil in the sight of Lord and served the Baals. So you have these people who have, they've wandered with, with Moses. They've crossed the Jordan into the Canaan land with Joshua. They've seen when Caleb walks up to, jo- walks up to Joshua and says, give me the mountain where the giants live. I'll take care of that. Y'all go take care of all these other people. You give me a couple people. We'll go to that mountain. We'll take care of those giants. They've seen nations being thrown out. There's problems in there, but being thrown out of the Canaan land. They didn't do it right all the time. But they've seen all this. They've seen and heard stories. At the very least, they've heard stories of their parents walking around the Sinai Peninsula and the wilderness for 40 years and their shoes not wearing out and they get hungry and so bread comes from the sky. Well, then they get tired of the bread and so they complained about it. And so God, in a very sarcastic manner, sent them so much quail that it was they, they couldn't even walk because of all the quail. They've heard these stories. They've seen all this. But now those people died. And the new generation is left to their own devices, left to... Figure out the answers. There are no parents or relatives or friends anymore. It's just them. They're all alone now. Now they're left to figure out what they're going to do by themselves. And they forget. Now, we often put a lot of pressure on those people in Judges 2, 10, and 11. The people who forgot. We put all the blame on them. All the... All the whole history of the Israelite people after that, when they start serving the Baals, solely rests upon that one generation who left God. How how ridiculous they they just became so postmodern that they came up with, with whatever they wanted to come up with. And that sound like today? We put all the blame on them. Here's the problem. People have not changed. I want to read you a couple quotes about the younger generation. Their lives are relegated more by moral feeling than by reasoning. Does that sound true? Their lives are more, uh, what was it, more relegated, regulated by moral feeling than by reasoning. The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents of old. They are impatient of all restraint. They talk as if they know everything. What passes for wisdom with us is foolishness with them. As for the girls, they're forward, they're immodest, they're unladylike, they, they have unladylike speech and behavior and dress. Doesn't that sound like something that we would talk about in Bible class today? Here's another one. When I was young, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders. But the present youth are exceedingly wise or disrespectful and impatient of restraint. 
The first quote was by Aristotle. The second quote was by Peter of Hermit, who lived in the 1200s AD. And the third one was by Hesiod, who is the history's first economist in the Greek nation. Young people have been like young people since the beginning of time. They are not any different. Us older folks, and I'm talking about myself because I caught myself a few weeks ago saying the same thing. These young kids don't care about anything these days. I, I do not have the ability to say that yet, but I caught myself saying it. Let me just point something out to you, okay? Your parents were saying the same thing about you when you were their age. And their parents were saying the same thing about them and back and back all the way since the beginning of time. Judges chapter 2. I guarantee you those Israelites in Judges 2 were saying, these kids, man, they don't care about any. They don't care about history. They don't care about their parents. They, they, they're hor- they, their language is horrible. They, they're so relativistic. It's true. Because when, they, when it became their decision, they left God. The problem is, if people haven't changed, if kids haven't changed, I'm going to bet that those statistics, other than, you know, the, the YouTube and the Google, um, those statistics haven't changed very much either. Which means, in Judges 2, it's not the generation that came up that didn't know God's fault. It's the generation that passed away's fault. Because they didn't get them ready for the answers. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some insight just from me. Take it or leave it. I'm not your parent or your relative, but I am your friend. Okay. I'm going to give you some insight. Okay. Now this is just, this is your preacher talking to you. Which means, if I upset you, I am sorry. I genuinely am. But you need to hear it. Here's some pointers. Are you ready? Parents, bring your kids to church. I don't mean get them in the building and let them sit in the pew. Make them, make them practice worshiping. Bring them to church. When there's a gospel meeting going on, take them. They need to see you acting it out. When you go home from church, don't badmouth Lee because he said something you didn't like. Don't badmouth so and so because they sat in your seat. When you're in the car on the way back from church, ask them how worship was. Get them to talk to you about what we studied or something like that. Don't badmouth the church because when they get older, they're going to remember what you said about the church and they're going to give up on it. If you make the church look like a bunch of morons, they're going to think we're a bunch of morons. Give them hard questions. You know, walk up to your son and say, I have a question for you. What if I, what would you say if I was offered a a raise, a promotion at work, and we would have a lot of money. We'd be able to go to Disney World every every year, every single year, without fail. We could be like the the people that we met the the few weeks ago that they bought a year-round pass, and they said, our year-round pass is over next week. And I said, oh, really, how many times do you come in a week or in a year? Does it pay for itself? And she said, well, we've been seven times this year. What? Okay, 
I'm going to get a promotion. And that means we can go to Disney World 15 times a year. That means you'll be able to buy every Xbox you want. We can have an Xbox in the living room and in the kitchen for when you're eating breakfast and everywhere else. But it also means that I'm not going to be able to go to church with y'all anymore because I've got to work on Sundays. What do you think I should do about it? Let them reason that out. And when they come up with the wrong answer, teach them. It's okay. They're going to have wrong answers. It's okay. I was talking to a preacher a few weeks ago, and he said, why do you ask so many questions in Bible class? What if they answer the wrong question? I said, good. If they answer the wrong question, that means that they're learning something. It's fine. Parents, get, give them the hard stuff. Make them think. If you're a relative and you know a child who doesn't come to services because his parents are worthless or because they just don't want to come to church or because they're, they're bitter about the church because they grew up in it and their parents bad about the church or just because they, they've given in to society and they're, just, they're not bad people, they're just, they just don't come to church anymore. Bring the kid. Ask the parents, can I, can I take Johnny to church with me on Sundays? And then you do the same thing. You talk good about the church. You ask them questions. You give them, give them a lifestyle that they need to see so that one day when they grow up, they'll be equipped to answer the tough questions. Because they're looking to you for the answers. They're not looking to me. I can sit up here and blabber until I'm blue in the face and my jaw locks up. And it's a million degrees in here right now. They're not looking to me. My job is just to teach you what you need to teach them and what you need to teach yourself. That was uh, some of the most humbling reading I've ever done in my entire life. This book, if you don't have this book, you can't borrow it until I'm done, but then you can borrow it. The Church's Modern Relationship to Liturgy. Y'all don't even know what liturgy is. Liturgy is, is um, the... How do I want to put this? Order of worship. Liturgy. See, this thing's got everything. I was just reading through here and I came to this and I thought, wow, I didn't even make the list. Now what? And then I called my friend and I said, okay, what do we do about this? We're not even on the list. Does that mean we're, we're wasting our time? Preachers have the same things that you think about, too. Maybe I'm just wasting my time. Maybe I need to go work at Walmart. The fact is, if we're going to set our kids up for success, we have to show them. We can't teach them from a pulpit. We've got to show them. And that means you're going to have to show them. And if you don't have kids, and you don't have relatives that are kids, there are kids sitting around you right now. You've heard the the saying, it takes a village, it takes a congregation. But parents, you're with them all the time. And you need to think about that next time you have an opportunity to teach them morals, to teach them respect for the scriptures, respect for God, and respect for other people, and respect for the church, and so forth. You need to remind yourself that... uh, What you do right now will decide what they decide to do later on. You know, we we like to 
we talk about we're free moral agents. And that's true. We make our own decisions. Sometimes kids, even though they're raised the way they should be, grow up and they make their own decisions to leave. But sometimes we make the decision for them too. If you need to become a Christian this morning, um, let me say this. You've got to make that decision. I, can't, I can tell you what you need to do, but I can't make, you make the decision for you. If you need to become a Christian and be baptized for the remission of your sins, we're willing and able to help you with that after you believe the truth and repent of your sins and confess Jesus Christ. If you need prayers of encouragement, if you're a Christian today and you need encouragement because something that I've blabbered on about today has struck you, or you just need to repent of public sin, or you need just prayers, then let us know. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement while we do that.